0: What I'm gonna do as we start out, I'm gonna speak to you, but won't you start passing this is a chronology of Ezra and Nehemiah? Don't let that big word scare you. There we go. Thank you. So I was gonna hand that out. And at the same time, there's another document which looks something like this coming around, and then another one which I've already filled in. You can't. This is a cheat sheet which looks like this. All right, so you're getting a whole bunch of papers this morning. But while those are while those are going out and about. Let me just anticipate something in the room this morning. Um, We've been two weeks already in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And I know whether you are able to admit this or not, I know there's some people thinking, oh man, won't you just get onto some application? We kind of understand the book, you know, you've done context and you've done, why it's like the exodus and why it's like this and blah, 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 blah. Can't we just like get into some application in the book? And so I want to just honor you for sticking with us for two weeks, and I want to ask you to stick with us for one more week. This is the last week. I want to do a big overview so that you understand the context. And I want to remind you, don't get too distracted with all the papers going out. Guys, can we just give them to people and let them pass them down the lines? That might be so much simpler. And then you just take, take one and, and pass it on. If you've already got one, pass it on to the next person. So if that's you, if you're not the kind of learner who's learning in the context kind of way that we're doing, I just want to say thanks for your grace, thanks for sticking with us, and it really is going to reap reward. It's like you're preparing, and then as you read Ezra and Nehemiah, it's going to be so much more meaningful to you once you understand some of these things. So, in the end, you should have two pages, and they should both be double sided pages. All right. So if, you, if you're brand new with us this morning, or maybe one of our guys have been with us for some time, but you've missed the last couple of weeks, um, I just want to quickly update you. We are doing a series on Ezra and Nehemiah. The reason that we're doing the books together is that in the Hebrew Bible, the books were written like this. They were never intended As two separate books. They were actually Ezra 1 and Ezra 2, which was later in the 13th century when it was translated into Latin, changed to Ezra and Nehemiah. But you'll see, especially this morning, as we look at the structure of the book, you'll see that they're written by one author, they're written with one main kind of theme, and you'll see that the the pattern that is used in the book is incredibly clear that it's just one big book. And so what I've been doing is in the last two weeks, I've really been trying to um, equip us to better understand the book. So when you start off and you start in Ezra chapter 1, and it says, As per the fulfillment of the prophecy of the prophet Jeremiah, you have to stop and say, Well, what did Jeremiah say? That's what I've been calling the hyperlink. If you don't click on that, you don't understand what actually he means and what's being fulfilled. And it's very powerful when you stop and you, and you click on it. Then we went into the book of Exodus last week. And we're, so we're in Ezra and Nehemiah, but we're seeing all over the book. There's these links back into the Exodus, and it's like the people are being invited into this new Exodus. And then, also last week, what we did is I did an apologetic as best as I could around 2 Timothy 3, verse 14. And we asked this question why should we study the Old Testament? Why is it even relevant to me? What does it matter to my life? And so Timothy is, is this guy who's leading a church in Ephesus, and Paul, who's his mentor, is busy writing to him. He's more than a mentor. He's a father to him. Is busy writing to him to try and, and keep hold of this really difficult church in Ephesians. And... Um, Paul says to him, I want you to remember the scripture. I want you to hold fast to the sacred writings. And then he gives them seven reasons. And they're so simple. He says, Because the scriptures make you wise. Because the scripture brings you salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The scripture brings teaching. It's like a teacher to you. It brings rebuke. Stop that! It brings rebuke. It brings correction. Hey, Paul, you're a little bit off course. Come back this way. It brings training in righteousness, like the gym bunny man. Remember? The spiritual muscles. It brings training in righteousness, and then it equips you for every good work. All things, we like, yes, I want those things, right? Now, here's the shock from last week when I was doing that apologetic, is that Paul, he says that those things are produced in us from the Old Testament, that's the Bible he's talking about. That's the only scripture he has. That is the sacred writings that he's referring to. So he says, those things are being produced in you by the Old Testament. And so we were just talking about how powerful it is to get stuck in and read the Old Testament. Now this morning, I want to change tack a little bit. I'm going to be a bit quicker, hopefully. And I want to equip you on how to read the book. Not just to better understand the context, I want to ask this question, how do you read Ezra and Nehemiah? Now hopefully, in the last three weeks, some of you have already been engaging with this book. If you aren't, I want to encourage you, start reading. But hopefully, or not hopefully, unfortunately, as you're reading the book, you might be getting quite frustrated and quite overwhelmed and thinking like, what does this mean? There's so many lists, and Paul's talking about hyperlinks, and I don't know where the hyperlinks are. and like, How do I even read this book? So hopefully this morning, this is going to answer that question, and that's what this page over here is all about, all right? You can grab a pen, and as we're going, I want to give you a visual representation. So you've actually got something to take home with you, and you can fill it in as we're going so that it makes a whole lot more sense when you see it put out like this, all right? I'm not going to go into application today. We've got weeks ahead of us to apply things, but I am trusting that the Spirit of God, even as we do something as almost lectury or teaching as what I'm going to do this morning, that He'll still come and apply it into our hearts and our minds. Okay, are you with me? Are you excited? Some of you are. Some of you are lying, but that's okay. We're still going to go. So here we go. Here we go. So what you've got, the the kind of umbrella picture of the book, is that there's this, this nation Israel, the Jews, they've been exiled into Babylon. And now it's like 50 to 70 years later, and the king is saying, you can go home. And then the, some of these people start coming home, but it happens in waves. They don't all go home at once. And this story, Ezra and Nehemiah, is the story of them rebuilding their lives as they get back to their city, which was sacked 70 years ago. So they arrive back in Judah, they come back to Jerusalem, it's still a pile of rubble, it's still been burnt out, and they begin to rebuild their lives. Now what you don't get on an initial reading of Ezra and Nehemiah is the time scale of the book. This book takes 106 years from start to finish. Just digest that, because you read it, and you read it in about three hours if you sit down. I did it this week again. I just went for a cup of coffee, of a fantastic place if you haven't been there. Go and sit down by the pool or inside in that little lounge they have, and just spend two, three hours and read the whole book of Ezra and the whole book of Nehemiah. It's beautiful, it's surprising, it's exciting, and it's daunting at the same time. So this is what I want to equip you with this morning. But it spans 106 years, and you don't get that when you read the book. And then it's, it's divided into very distinct sections which you'll see on your page so ezra 1 to 6 ezra 7 to 10 and nehemiah 1 to 7 are basically if you had to zoom out on them they're basically a repeat of a very similar pattern all right and this is what the pattern looks like there's a persian king and god comes and stirs this king's heart which in itself is wonderful A pagan king being used by God, but God comes and stirs a king's heart. Then that king commissions a Jewish leader for a specific task. So he says, You can go back and you can, and we'll talk about some of those tasks in a minute. Then that, that that leader, as he goes back into Jerusalem, faces some kind of opposition. So he's trying to complete this task, but something gets in the way of him trying to complete that task. Then he succeeds, but it's kind of like you're going to see succeeds is not the best word because there's kind of moments where you're like, is this success? It doesn't feel like success, but it's kind of like it's helping him to accomplish his task. And then at the end of each of these three sections, there's an anticlimax. All right? I'm just going to tell you that right up front. It's anticlimactic. It's, it's, it's. It's hard. It's like it's sad as you see what's going on in these stories. All right. So that gives you kind of like a big picture of the beginning of Ezra or whole of Ezra and the beginning of Nehemiah. And then 8 to 12 and 13 we'll deal with a little bit separately. Are you sticking with me? Is that, that's pretty simple, right? So what I want to do quickly is just in all three of those sections, we're going to deal with the top three things. King, leader, task. King leader task in all three of them, just so we don't have to go back there and you get an idea. So in Ezra chapter 1, you'll see that the king is a guy called King Cyrus. The king of the Persians, King Cyrus. The leader has this fantastic name. If, you, if you're pregnant and you're expecting, Zerubbabel. Great name. Z-E-R-U-B-B-A-B-E-L. Zerubbabel is the Jewish leader, and there's also another guy who's kind of like a a secondary wingman. His name is Yeshua, which actually is Jesus. So not Jesus as in Jesus Christ, like his name is the same, Yeshua. And he's got it, this is his task. So he's sent back to Jerusalem for the very specific task of rebuilding the temple. Simple, okay? King Cyrus sends Zerubbabel back with a group of people, so the first wave of the exiles go back to build the temple, so when you look at your chronology, right, it gets a little bit confusing in this book because this book is not laid out in like sequential order. It's not like this happens and that happens and that happens and that happens. So there's parts of Ezra and Nehemiah where he's kind of gone forward and taken an edict from like 60 years before and he's, he writes about it as if it's like right now, as if it's current. So if you do a chronological study, you're going to get quite confused. So that's why these kind of sections are so helpful because they're actually arranged according to task. That's the main arrangement, task, rebuild the temple. Then, Ezra 7 to 10, the guy's name, another great name, Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes, it's a fantastic name. I think it's going to come up at, at some point along the way. Great handwriting, eh? The leader in this section is Ezra himself, who most scholars agree is the author of both of these books that we call Ezra and Nehemiah. And his main goal, so his task, is that he's a scribe, he's a teacher, he's a preacher, and he is coming to bring back the Torah to the people. He's coming to teach them the laws of God, the Torah. And then along with that, he's coming to bring back a sense of identity and community. For the Jewish people. So that looks like um, the Passover. It looks like the religious calendar. He's bringing all that back. The way they follow the laws, the rituals, etc. And then the last king in, in Nehemiah is again is Artaxerxes. The leader this time is Nehemiah. And this is maybe the most famous of all the books. His role is to rebuild the walls. Right? Nehemiah, the wall builder. That's what he's there to do. Okay, so with those things in mind, we're going to dive into Ezra 1 and 6. I'm going to move quickly. I'm not going to go through copious amounts of scripture because it just is going to make it very difficult for you. So we'll just dip into scripture occasionally, but trust me on the facts and then go and read them for yourself in the week and in the weeks to come. So Ezra 1 to 6. We're going to look at it through this, the the, the same pattern, the book's design. But Zerubbabel actually means, it's a Babylonian word which means planted in Babylon. And he represents, this leader represents the whole generation who've been born in Babylon, in exile. And remember now that as we start reading in the book of Ezra, what is this trigger? As the people start returning, what is this trigger for the people? Right, We've been speaking about this for the last two weeks. There's four things. There's four kind of areas of hope which come out of Jeremiah 30 to 33. Anyone remember what they are? So the people are going to return. Then they're going to rebuild. Then there's something else that's triggered. There's a Messiah coming. Do you remember this? There's a Messiah. And then one of the signs is that all nations, not just Israel, all nations are going to come back. And so as you start in the book of Ezra, when you get to chapter 3, it's like this beautiful, it's like so full of hope. It's so full of anticipation. The people rebuild the altar of God. They haven't been able to sacrifice for 70 years in the temple. And they rebuild this altar. And they start sacrificing. And it's joyful. And it's hopeful. And it's full of anticipation and expectation. And then there's like free will offerings like all over the place. People are giving stuff for the temple. It's unbelievable. Then they're rebuilding the temple, this we don't get it. It's, this, it's the pinnacle of Jewish faith and identity at this time. They, they, they get to rebuild, and there's all this hope. But then right there, as they're dedicating in chapter 3, they're dedicating this temple that they're building. They start to dedicate the foundations that are being laid. And right there, there's like this little bit of anticlimax, right? If you go and read in Ezra 3, you'll see that What happens, I'll read it for you, verse 11. All the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundations of the house of the Lord was laid. You see the hope? Great shout, full of joy. But, here's the anticlimax. Many of the priests and Levites and heads of the Father's house, old men who had seen the first house, the first temple, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundations of this house being laid. And though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of joyful shouts from the sound of the people's weeping. So they're looking at this new temple and they're like, this is nothing like our old temple. It's like you moved from the five bedroom to the flat. It's nothing like our old temple. And they're weeping. Chapter 3 at the end of that chapter The people face opposition. Now, here's the fascinating thing about this opposition. This opposition is largely from the Israelites who didn't go into the exile. It's a very strange part of the story. So, if you go and read back in the book of Kings, you'll see that when when this place was sacked, some of the Israelites, especially those who were poor and didn't really have all the brains, they kind of left them behind. Because they didn't really want to take them all the way back to Babylon. So these guys have been living there for the last 70 years. And now they come along and they say, well, we, we want to help as well. You're building the temple, Zerubbabel. Let us come and help. And Zerubbabel says, no. And it's like this, this, weird, this weird kind of moment. And somewhere in the next few weeks, I'm hoping to get to this. Because I think it speaks quite powerfully of potentially, it's, it's, it's quite am, ambiguous in the text, but potentially of a real missed opportunity. Do you remember in the background this this prophecy that all nations are going to come to this temple and now here 's this leader appointed by God, a great leader who 's saying no, you, you can 't come even even you guys that didn 't come back in the exile and it it raises like this really pertinent question for us as as god 's people now, as we kind of have to live in these two worlds where we are separate from the world and we want to be a people removed in some way from the world, and yet at the same time, we commanded to live within the world. So how do we how do we do that? How do we know, are these guys enemies? Are they trying to like take us away from God? Are they trying to take us to idol worship? Are they trying to mix what we're trying to do here? Are they coming with a political agenda? Or are these people people that we should be welcoming and teaching the truth of God? And it's, it's a very difficult balance, so we're going to get there in some week's time. But so these guys, obviously, they've now been they, they, they're the, they're the people who stayed there. They were the ones who lived in Israel, in Jerusalem. And now these, like these, wannabe Israelites, have come back after 70 years in Babylon. And they're like, "You can't help us build the temple." So they like get up the myth tree, and so they then start writing letters back to Persia, to the king, to say, "You don't know what you've commissioned here. This go back into the annals of history and look at this city, Jerusalem. They've always caused problems for kings. They're going to stop paying you taxes." If you let this carry on, this whole region is going to be taken over by these guys. And so the king gets a fright. He stops the building of the temple. So that little moment forces them to stop work for 10 years. Nothing. Foundations are laid. They can't carry on building the temple. Then up come two prophets. These names should be familiar for you. Haggai and Zechariah. Two more books of the Bible. But they contemporaries. They're in the Ezra story. Go look in chapter 4, 5, and 6. And these two guys, these prophets, begin to prophesy. And they stir up courage in the hearts of the men and of the women in this place. And they start to build again and go against the decree of Cyrus. So what happens? The opposition rises up again, sends letters again. But this time, they send their own letters. And they say to King Cyrus, go and look back in the annals. There was an edict written that says that we're allowed to do what we are going to do. And the king goes and checks that, and it's true. And so they come back again... And this is what it says. And I I just, I'm going to read some texts because I just think they're so, they're so shocking. They're so beautifully done. So Ezra chapter six. Now remember, there's this opposition. They're trying to stop them. They've succeeded for 10 years. Now the king sends back this letter and it says, moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full without delay from the royal revenue. So these opposition now, suddenly they don't just have the rebuilding of the temple. They've got to fund it. Don't you love God? Don't you love His purposes? I just love that little bit. And then he goes on, just in case they missed the point in verse 11. He says, also, this is King the king, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam should be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled upon the beam. Pretty serious. So you don't want to change this thing. And then it goes down to verse 13, and I love their response. All the governors the beyond the river, blah, blah, and their associates did with all diligence what the king had ordered. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you if he was going to pull out a beam and and pale you on it? So, we're almost at the end of this section, but eventually what happens is the temple is finished. Twenty years after it was started, the people complete the task of Zerubbabel to build the temple. And then here's the, here's the kind of, here's the big moment in this section. There's a huge celebration. The people celebrate Passover. It reminds us again, back of Exodus. But remember there was that little inkling of an anticlimax when they built the foundations we're talking about. The people are weeping. And this time there's even a bigger anticlimax. Now they, they've all gathered. They're celebrating this, this temple, this house of God. Now if you go and you look each time that a house has been dedicated to God, there's two previous occasions. On both of those occasions, the one is with Moses, right, in the desert, and they build the, the tabernacle. And we're going to go and look at a moment at what happens when, when they finish building the tabernacle. They also have a celebration. They also, they also do the same stuff, but something different happens. And then again, when, Tom, when uh, Solomon dedicates the temple. So let's go and look in Leviticus 9. This is the dedication of the tabernacle. Moses and Aaron, verse 23, Leviticus 9, Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. So everyone standing there at the tabernacle, they see the glory of God probably coming down in some sort of cloud, into and upon The tabernacle. So God's coming and saying, yes, I'm going to dwell with you. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offerings and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and they fell on their faces. Pretty amazing moment. If I had a time machine, I'd love to go back there. Go and see that. Then you skip forwards. Now the people have taken the promised land. Solomon builds the temple. There's a dedication ceremony. And at the dedication in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10 to 11, listen to this. Listen to this. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. They couldn't do their job. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Just a tiny little side thing here. Around being critical of charismatics and people falling down under the power of the Spirit, it's pretty biblical. The one time they're falling down because they recognize their own sin and they throwing themselves on the ground, but the other time in the Old Testament, when the Spirit of God descends, the priests can't even minister because they're falling about. Just be care- all I'm saying is just be careful. Let God be God. Just shh sometimes, shh. God's being God. If people get up and they changed, wonderful. If they stand and nothing happens and they still changed, wonderful. That's my view. Anyway. Little sidebar, but guys, this this moment in the book is a huge, huge anticlimax because as the people of Ezra, in the book of Ezra, as these exiles dedicate the temple, there's not a sign of the presence of God, not a sign. God should have showed up. God should have been there. These people have persevered against opposition. They've left, they've left Babylon in, in this four-month, 1,500-kilometer journey. They've given loads and loads of their money to this project. They've built for 20 years. Remember all the hope, all the anticipation? God's going to come. He's going he's to live with us. And the power of God is meant to descend, and it doesn't. Where's the power of God? So that's the anticlimax in Ezra chapter 1 to 6, that first section. Okay, you got that? The other two are much quicker. I just need to lay a bit of a foundation here. So then we go into Ezra chapter 7. And what you need to know here, on your little page, make an arrow somewhere over there. Make a little arrow and write 60 years. So the end of Ezra chapter 6, when that celebration is happening... And the first verse of Ezra chapter 7, there's a 60 year pause. All right? So this time, remember the king is Artaxerxes, the leader is Ezra. What's his task? His task is to come back and teach the people the Torah and to rebuild Jewish community among the people. So this time we see the second waves of exiles coming back. Again, hope is high. There's excitement, there's anticipation, but this time, immediately that he gets back, as they start celebrating and coming together, the officials come and say, Ezra, the people have been mixing and marrying with foreigners. They're mixing and marrying with foreigners. They've been unfaithful to the law of God. So these returning Jews, these Jews who came back with Zerubbabel, remember they've been here for 80 years already. 20 years of building the temple, 60 years later, 80 years, they've been marrying non-Jewish exiles and foreigners. Now remember, what is, what is so crazy with this? Well, Ezra's task is to teach the Torah and to rebuild community. But he's completely hamstrung. This time the opposition is from within, because he can't do this because of the intermarriage, right? How can you teach Torah... How can you teach the law of God to a people who haven't even followed the most basic laws of God which they already knew? They knew they weren't allowed to intermarry. He must have been thinking to himself, have they forgotten how the exile happened in the first place? Have they forgotten what happened that we ended up in Babylon, that people started marrying other people and then they started worshipping other gods And then God said, because you are idolatrous and because you don't treat the poor right, I'm sending you out for 70 years to Babylon and your whole city is going to be destroyed. People are going to die. Have you forgotten? And it's like this this issue is on repeat. And so this time the opposition is not from outside. It's from, he can't do his task because of what's going on right there. How can, how can he build community and teach the Torah when within the very community he's trying to teach them how to live by Jewish calendars, Calendars they filled up with people of foreign nationalities, worshipping different gods. You get a, a feel for how deeply serious this is. Because for us, you know, well, I married a British girl. Big deal you know, so when we read this, we read it with our modern eyes, like, you know, different country, different person, what's the big deal? But here for them, it's huge. When you look in Ezra chapter 9 and verse 3 to 6, as the people tell Ezra that this has happened, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garments and my cloak and I pulled hair from my head and beard. Anyone tried that? I mean, I pull out a nose hair and I'm like crying for like a day. This like is is so upset with what's going on. He's pulling out chunks of his beard and of his hair to show the people how traumatized he is by this news. And I sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the word of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returning exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garments and my cloak torn. I fell upon my knees. I spread out my hands to the Lord, my God, saying, "O oh my God, I am ashamed. And I blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Do you see how big this is for him? Ezra chapter 10, verse 1 while Ezra prayed and made confession. So while that moment's going on, there's another little piece of commentary happening here. Weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, of women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. The success in this one is the most difficult one, because what the people decide to do And I must emphasize here that this is not a command from God. The people decide that the only way that they can continue with this task of learning the Torah and of being a community set apart is to divorce and send away all the foreign women with their children. And that's the the anticlimax here. So there is this double anticlimax. The one is that the people have sinned; they've gone back into this exile state, even though God has rebuilt the temple and rescued them. And then the second part is this: is this crazy, this craziness that they send these women and these children away? And you're like, is that is that success, God? Is that? I mean, even now in the room, right? That's not that's not what we were hoping for, God. Okay, we're going to we're going to deal with that and. In some weeks to come, we'll bring some clarity to some of that. And just remember, the thing I want you to take away from that is that God did not instruct that. In fact, one of the contemporary prophets, Malachi, expressly uh, was against divorce. And he's at the same time as this. He's writing into the same thing. So we'll get there. That takes us to Nehemiah. So Nehemiah then, so this book, Ezra, literally ends on that note. All the men have to come and for like months they do one by one. They do case by case. They tell them, and some of them decide they're going to divorce their wives and send them away, and others decide they're going to keep them, and it's that's where it ends, right there, Ezra chapter 10. So then Nehemiah begins. Now this is only 12 years later. All right, you with me? 20 years to build the temple, 60 years, some more years while this thing happens, and then 12 years later Nehemiah gets a report that things are not going well. Now, remember the context here, guys. So, when you read Nehemiah, it's like it seems when you read it in isolation, it seems quite odd because he suddenly, like, he just hears about Jerusalem and you're like, dude, this happened like a hundred, like 80 years ago or 90 years ago. Why in the world are you weeping like it just happened today? He's weeping, and he goes before God, and he doesn't eat, and he's fasting for days on end. And it's like this huge, dramatic, it looks like you know, it looks like he's being a drama queen, like in the moment. And You're like, what are you doing? But you realize that there's no emails going back. There's no news going back. So as Nehemiah is living with this hope in his heart, Ezra's gone back. Ezra's gone back. He's supposed to be teaching the law. He's heard reports. The temple's been rebuilt. He thinks it's all roses, and there's this awesome, wonderful revival happening in Jerusalem. But he hears the report that the people are living in shame. That the walls are broken down. That there doesn't seem to be any community. And the people are not following God. And so he's devastated. And we're going to talk in a few weeks time. I can't wait to get to this one around social injustice. Biblical justice. I can't wait to get. What what is the big deal about the walls being broken down? And we're going to talk about that. And then Nehemiah begins to pray. And we're going to talk about prayer in this section as well. And it's stunning. So then he leads A third wave of exiles. And these guys are awesome. They start rebuilding the walls with passion, with fervor. And what I love about it, and we're going to talk about this when we get there, is the priesthood of all believers It's not just Nehemiah and like a few of his like executive uh, builders that are busy going nuts. You're going to read that chapter. It's beautiful. It's like the goldsmiths are working. And there's this guy who says he doesn't have any sons, so he gets his daughters. And his daughters are working with him. And everyone's building the wall. And it's just like the most eclectic group of non-builders you've ever seen. And they undertake this task. It's beautiful. But then, as we've come to anticipate, can you see how the story begins to repeat? And you can begin to anticipate what's going to happen. So we know there's this hope. The king sent him out. There's this leader. He's got a very specific task. And then what happens? Opposition. Nehemiah chapter 4. Sanballat and, and Tobiah... These guys start mocking them. They start jeering at them in chapter 4. In fact, Tobias says, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he'll break their wall down. Just if a fox runs on their wall, that's how pathetic. He calls them feeble Jews. What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish? And not just rubbish, but burnt rubbish. And then the success here. Do you remember this is the same group of people that was, that was isolated right up the front by Zerubbabel? The same group. He said, you can't, you can't build with us. It's the same group of people, the people of the land. Now, it goes like a step further, and Nehemiah arms his people against these Jerusalem, the Israel people that were there before them. He gets arms and they hear these guys are going to come and try and kill them. So he gets arms. And he says, You're not going to come kill us. We're going to fight. We're going to keep building the wall. And it's like, rah, rah. And sometimes this, sometimes this series is preached like, rah, rah, let's be like Nehemiah and let's rebuild the walls. And I'm all for rebuilding walls, but there's a lot of subtle stuff in here. So they arm themselves. They continue resolutely building the wall and then success. At the end of chapter six in Nehemiah, the walls are finished. The walls are completed. But again, there's this sense of anticlimax in our hearts, especially around this fight with the opposition. And you're wondering, like, wondering about the exclusion of the nations. Do you remember I said to you just now that the contemporary prophets were Haggai and Zechariah? There's something fascinating here, because they're busy prophesying at the same time as all of this is going on. Zechariah is busy prophesying about a Jerusalem without walls. Go and read in Zechariah 2. He's busy prophesying about a Jerusalem that has no boundaries, and everyone is welcome, and all nations will come and worship in Jerusalem. And yet here, Nehemiah seems to be operating in completely the opposite spirit, where he's like, we're building the walls. You're out. We're in. We're the chosen. You're the frozen. You're out. He's like kicking people out, and there's this Anticlimactic sense in our hearts. Like God, didn't you say in Jeremiah? Didn't you say in Zechariah that all the people are going to come and worship you? How, when, and and you left with this feeling. Couldn't this all have been handled so differently? Couldn't we have done something so different here? And that's where Ezra one to seven ends. So are you with me so far? Do I need a recap? were you guys, you guys following me? You got your papers there? Awesome. I know you're going to forget by the end of next week. So that's why you take your papers. Nehemiah chapter 8 to 12 is like, so this is all these cycles have finished. This is probably the most hope-filled section of the book. And finally, you think, right? So, this is, let me tell you what happens first. There's there's a huge spiritual renewal among the people. Ezra and Nehemiah, these two excellent leaders, come together. You've got like the can-do-it guy, Nehemiah, and you've got like the scribe and the preacher and the guy who's teaching them the Word of God and who's passionate about Jewish community. They come together and there's like this revival. There's a spiritual renewal. That's the main point of the section on your page. Main point, spiritual renewal. How they do it? Well, they have the seven-day Torah marathon. They, They literally build a platform and they tell everyone to come. Everybody comes, and for seven days, they read and teach them the law of God from this platform. The people are cut to the heart. They completely come before God, and the vows they make are beautiful in these chapters. They confess their sins. They're attentive. They're excited. Then they renew the covenant with God. They say, God, we see that we've broken faith with you. We want to renew this covenant again. And then they say they vow to follow the Torah. This time, God, we're going to follow it. This time, we're going to be different this time, God. Yes, we know all through history we haven't, but this time, God. And you get this this bubbling sense of hope and excitement in your own heart as you're reading it. There's this great celebration over Jerusalem, over the walls. They're praising God. And it seems like finally all the hope and expectation which has been promised since Jeremiah. And it's like, it's going to come true. It's going to come true. Finally, Israel are going to be the people that was prophesied about. And then Nehemiah goes away for a little bit and he comes back. And then Nehemiah chapter 13. On my notes, I've drawn a big dark cloud. You can draw that on yours. A big dark cloud, Nehemiah chapter 13. He comes back and on it he does a tour of Jerusalem. And guys, these, these little structures are not... They're not arbitrary. The author has been deliberately weaving them into the story. And so what do you think the three areas are that he goes and shows you that have not been kept? Well, what were the three main tasks? They were meant to rebuild the temple. It was meant to be glorious, full of hope. They meant to follow the Torah, become a true community of God again, and they meant to rebuild the walls and and all these beautiful tasks that they meant to complete. The author goes to exactly the same three tasks and shows you in chapter 13 how the people are not looking after the temple, they're neglecting it. The temple's falling down. The people have gone back to their, to their lands. The priests are, are not the priests that are, that are supposed to be there are not there, so they've made other sort of demi-priests who shouldn't be there. Not just that, so Zerubbabel's work is undone. Not just that, but the people are working on the Sabbath. This is not one of the complex Torah laws. This is one of the, the primary laws. Don't work on the Sabbath. Even we know that. That's how commonplace it was for them. But they're working on the Sabbath. So... Ezra's work is undone. They're not doing what Ezra tried to do. And then even on the walls, the people are setting up markets. And they're using the walls as like a prop to set up their stalls. And they're selling stuff on the Sabbath. And Nehemiah, in chapter 13, it's quite entertaining actually. He goes ballistic on the people. He goes and starts pulling people's hair out. I mean, it's it's literally like kindergarten, you know, like in the sandpit. He starts pulling people's hair out. No joke. Go read it. It's there, Nehemiah 13. He starts beating people up. This is his response. He's trying to force them to obey. He's like, don't you get it? We've been doing this for 106 years. Are you people stupid? And he starts like pulling their hair out. And he's doing all this stuff. It's a crazy section. And then he, he, he issues this like quite self-righteous prayer where he's like, God, I've tried to teach these people, but they don't want to listen. And remember me, God. Remember what I did. Remember all these things I try to do, but it's these people. Wada, what wada, wada. And the book ends. And you're like, what? What, God, what? This, this can't be it. Is there another, is there another, is someone, maybe he wrote another book. Let's go find another book. Maybe finally these people got it right. But it's just like anticlimax after anticlimax after anticlimax. But we're used to this pattern now, right? When you understand the book, when you see how the author has so deliberately woven this text together, that's why in the the bottom in red, we put anticlimax, 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 anticlimax. And you can circle that and link them. The author, the whole way through, has been deliberately leading you on a journey. There's hope, there's hope, oh no. There's hope, there's hope, oh no, the people didn't do it. The whole way through. And the book of Nehemiah ends in exactly the same way. Way. You remember right in the beginning, Ezra chapter 1, all the hope, all the expectation, all the anticipation. God's going to do this. Jeremiah 30, 31, 32, 33. Let's go read it, kids. Let's see what God's going to do as we go on our journey. And now the people get their land. They get their temple. They get their Torah teacher. They get priests. They get leadership, they get their community, they get their walls rebuilt, and none of the hope ultimately materializes. None of it turns out like they hoped. We're going to break communion now. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm just going to weave into our story. the an anticlimax right there. So we, we, when we read this book, we're like, You've got to ask this question like, what does this teach us about the Bible narrative? Like, what is the purpose of this book? Like, why do we, why do we bother spending time reading this depressing book? Like, I've got better things to do. See, the, 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 the huge take home from the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, the huge take home is actually found back in, in Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah, in his prophecies on hope, the thing that these guys are clinging to and hoping is going to materialize, and they're pinning their hopes on the temple. Then they're pinning their hopes on the Torah and on community. And then they're pinning their hopes on, on the rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. They're pinning their hopes on all these, these things. But Jeremiah 31, 31, it's easy to remember, 31 is 31, says, Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new Covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So these guys have been perpetuating the Egypt story and perpetuating Exodus comes and the next exiles go. There's three waves of them within the story of Ezra Nehemiah, but none of them. It's like it's like the same old covenant that you made with our fathers from Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Does that sound familiar? They're still breaking it now. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Now this part now, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. Do you remember Ezekiel 36? Also a prophet in this time. Do you remember what Ezekiel says? What's his what's this kind of some of his conclusion? He says, God, my heart is like stone. This is my paraphrase. God, my heart is like stone. I, I don't I don't need you to teach me any more laws. I don't need you to write them on tablets anymore. God, I need you to take out my heart of stone, and I need to put in its place a heart of flesh. Do you see the echoes of Jeremiah thirty-one? God, you're going to make a new covenant. This old covenant doesn't work, God. It's not fit for purpose, God. We keep on trying and we go cycle after cycle after cycle and we just end up again and again depressed, anticlimax, unable to help ourselves, unable to truly follow your words, making you angry so you take us back into exile again. Do you start to see the echo into the New Testament? Paul writing... And he says, if the law could have saved you, but the law couldn't save you, those of you trying legalism, those of you trying to follow laws and behaviorism, it's not going to save you. It's just going to make you really tired, make you really grumpy, make you a terrible husband, make you a terrible wife. It really is. It's not fun to live with a legalistic person. Trust me, I've lived it myself. We've, We've all fought these fights. So what the book of Ezra and Nehemiah ultimately points to is humankind's deep, deep need for a new heart. A new heart. Not this heart of stone. Not this heart that God needs to come and and rewrite on a new heart His laws. Give me a, a new heart, God, is often the cry. Of the psalmist. So think about think about the New Testament and the speaking about God. He doesn't care about what you do, he doesn't care about your sacrifices, all these things. He cares about circumcision of the heart. He's not interested in just this external circumcision that you did in the ambulance outside. He's interested in the circumcision that he can do in your heart. He needs to change you on the inside because the outside just doesn't work. And so the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, imagine if you're reading it for the first time and you don't know the Jesus portion of the story. It leaves us with this anticipation in our hearts. God, you've promised these things. God, these things aren't happening. What are you going to do? What are you going to do, God? How are you going to fulfill these these promises that you've made? How are you going to fulfill your covenant? And we are going to leave it there for today. And just as we... I'm going to break communion in a few minutes. I want you to go to this page, the one on the other side. And we're going to read the last last paragraph, starts with a big letter A. I'm going to read it over us. And this is some of, this is some of the answer that these guys in this book are crying out for. God when, how, what are you gonna do? Remember that the biblical just to give you context to this little piece, the biblical storyline that we were speaking about last week is it, it goes in a very systematic pattern. The people of God sin, God raises up a Messiah type figure to come and rescue them, the people get rescued, the people turn to God for a while, the people turn against God again, repeat. That's the that's the rhythm of what we see in the Scriptures. As our eyes open to this biblical storyline, we realize that we too, you guys, us, me, have been invited into a new exodus, into the storyline of God's faithfulness and redemption, just like generations before. But something has significantly shifted in the story. While in previous dramas... God has raised up Messiah-like figures, Ezra, Nehemiah, Moses, Abraham, Noah, Deborah, all these people. In our story, the true Messiah, Jesus Christ, was literally raised up on a cross. While the Egypt exodus brought temporary relief, Jesus' death brings permanent freedom once and for all displaying the faithfulness of the Father. At the same time, Jesus forever fulfilled the hope-laden prophecy, Jeremiah, Zechariah, all these other prophecies, Isaiah, there's tons and tons, that a Messiah would draw all nations to worship the one true God at a new temple. We are those nations, and Christ himself is the new temple. I want you to think about that, that today we are, the, we are living in the fulfillment of the prophecies of thousands of years. Scripture says that those of old looked forward and longed to be a part of what was coming. We are those nations. Before Christ, As in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, God punished the people's invariable or inevitable slide back into sin because of His righteous justice. Now, that punishment has been borne by Jesus. So while we still struggle with sin, we live under grace and are declared justified and righteous before God who looks on Christ rather than on us for our salvation. So don't for a moment think, That we are somehow more able to keep ourselves pure than those silly Israelites in Ezra and Nehemiah. Guys, our hearts are just as prone to sinfulness. The difference is that God doesn't take us into a 70-year exile. He takes Jesus and Jesus bears for us our sin, which enables us to live in grace and freedom from legalism and law-keeping. And building temples and learning the Torah and having to rebuild walls around our city, do you get it? Do you see it? Isn't it beautiful the, the scriptures you know you know what I've loved, just a little side thing, but what I've loved as i'm as I'm studying this book is just you know how often we think about the credibility of scripture and where the scripture is credible. Guys, when you see how long God has been saying the same things, when you see how it's been on different continents and and authors that are thousands of years removed, and yet there's the same story, the same thread, it makes my heart delight. I feel faith bursting up in me. This is true. This word of God. All right, I'm done. Let's pray, and then let's take communion together. And I want to ask you, as you take in communion, think about the story. Think about where God's placed you in the story. And let's, with gratitude in our hearts, remember Christ, thanking Him for what He's done. So, Father, we want to thank You. I know this morning, Lord, even for me, was, was dry in some ways and was cerebral. And we're trying to come to grips with how to read a book. And another part of me is really like, I just want to see Jesus in you and I want to get stuck in Lord. But even as we do that, we're trying to be as faithful as we can with the precious word of God that you've given us. We're trying to be stewards, and we're trying to come and say, Lord, show us how to read this rightly. Teach us how to do this well, so that you can come by your Holy Spirit and speak deeply into our lives. So God, I ask that you would do this even in this room today, but even through the next weeks, as we begin to personally engage with Ezra and Nehemiah, and reading these texts. Father, would you come and speak powerfully to us, Like 2 Timothy 3.14, would you come bring wisdom? Would you come and bring salvation through faith in Jesus Christ through these texts as we read these texts? Would you come and bring teaching into our lives? Correction, rebuke, training in godliness and equipping for every good work. Come and do that in our hearts, Lord. As we break bread now, we remember you. Remember your blood. Remember your body. And we say a profound thank you. Thank you that you've invited us onto this incredible story. That you've invited us into this drama. Who am I that you are mindful of me, God? The son of man that you care for him. Yet you made him a little lower than the angels, crowning him in glory.